You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. No one but Bloomberg seems to retain much faith in Bloomberg's story about Chinese supply chain seeding attacks. Twitter blots bots retailing coordinated Saudi talking points about the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Latvia says it blocked attempts to interfere with its October elections. An SEO poisoning exploits interest in keywords associated with U.S. midterms. Ocean Lotus has a new trick. Virginia Tech's Mike Horning joins us to discuss social media regulation. A Connecticut town pays ransom, and ransomware hoods take pity on a grieving father. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 19th, 2018. Reports of a Chinese supply chain seeding attack continue to look increasingly thin. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence says that while, of course, the prospect of such attacks is worrisome, the intelligence community can't find any evidence that this one actually happened. DNI Dan Coates said at CyberScoop's CyberTalk session yesterday, quote, We've seen no evidence of that, but we're not taking anything for granted. We haven't seen anything, but we're always watching, end quote. So the message from the intelligence community seems to be, as NSA's Rob Joyce put it earlier this month, this. Looking for that Chinese spy chip on server motherboards may be chasing shadows. Former intelligence officials, now retired to the private sector, second the views of the incumbents. Michael Rogers, until this spring director NSA, told Forbes mildly, I'm not sure I agree with everything I read. One of his Israeli counterparts, Nadav Zafrir, who formerly led Israel's Unit 8200, told the same publication that he wasn't personally aware of anything like the attack Bloomberg described. One of the most striking features of the episode is the quick, clear, and unambiguous denial by the companies said to have been affected by the chip. None of the purported victims have come forward, and the most prominent companies to be named in the dispatches, Apple and Amazon, would find themselves exposed to considerable reputational and legal risk if their vehement contradiction of the Bloomberg reports were false or unfounded. The company at the center of the allegations in the Bloomberg story, Supermicro, whose motherboards were said to have been salted with spy chips, has replied to an inquiry from U.S. Senators Rubio and Blumenthal with a categorical denial that it sustained this kind of supply chain attack. Earlier today, Apple CEO Tim Cook told BuzzFeed that Bloomberg needed to do the right thing and retract its account. Bloomberg hasn't done so, instead offering this statement to BuzzFeed, quote, Bloomberg Businessweek's investigation is the result of more than a year of reporting, during which we conducted more than 100 interviews. Seventeen individual sources, including government officials and insiders at the companies, confirmed the manipulation of hardware and other elements of the attacks. We also published three companies' full statements, 
as well as a statement from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We stand by our story and are confident in our reporting and sources. End quote. No other news organizations or companies we've been able to find have been able to confirm Bloomberg's account. Thomas Ridd of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and author of Rise of the Machines engaged in an uncharacteristic Twitter rant. He tweeted in part, Bloomberg's big hack story is the single biggest cock-up in InfoSec reporting that I know of. Before somebody says it again, yes, a supply chain hack is possible in theory. That is not the point. Of course it is. The point is that there is no evidence so far for an alleged operation that should by definition create hard evidence if it actually happened. So man up, Bloomberg. Face the facts if you think facts matter. Get to the bottom of what went wrong here. Stop wasting the time of so many people behind the scenes and try to salvage your badly tarnished reputation in computer security reporting. End quote. That's Thomas Ridd, and it would seem he speaks for many other security experts. One would think that concrete examples of the sort of malicious device would have surfaced by now if, in fact, there were a supply chain seeding campaign of this kind. So keep an open mind about the story if you wish, and of course recognize that supply chain security is a serious matter. Sorry, Professor Ridd, for saying it again. But also recognize that so far, as disappointed researchers say, there's no joy. A priori possibility is a good counsel of prudence, but as evidence, it's vanishingly weak. Twitter has blocked a number of bots that were pushing what appeared to be Saudi government talking points concerning journalist Jamal Khashoggi's apparent murder. Khashoggi, who disappeared into a Saudi consulate in Turkey on October 2nd, hasn't been seen since. The bots are relatively low-volume operations, which appears to be one of the reasons they've generally escaped notice. Flown below the radar, as Ben Nimmo, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab, puts it, the bots engage selectively. In this case, they've been using hashtags like We All Trust Mohammed bin Salam or Unfollow Enemies of the Nation. They engage selectively and only on matters of apparent importance to the kingdom's policy. The goal would be, as Nemo observed to NBC News, to push the kingdom's messaging into trending on Twitter, where the regime's talking points are likely to find new and potentially receptive viewers. Latvian sources say the country sustained but parried cyber attacks apparently directed at affecting the October 6th elections. Some of the temporarily successful attacks posted pro-Russian messages in social media. There's some newly observed election-related activity in the U.S. as well, but this seems to be of the ordinary criminal kind, quite uninterested in affecting the outcome of voting. Security firm Zscaler reports that a search engine optimization poisoning campaign SEO poisoning for short, is in progress. The perpetrators are using keywords likely to be associated with the American midterm elections to drive traffic to sites that advertise various scams, or to watering holes that expose visitors to exploit kits, or at least to potentially unwanted programs. Security firm Silence reports that Vietnam's cyber espionage threat group Ocean Lotus, also known as APT32 or Cobalt Kitty, has shown renewed activity and upped its game in several respects, including through the use of obfuscated cobalt strike beacon payloads for command and control. The town of West Haven, Connecticut, suffered a ransomware attack. Unable to think of any better option, the town decided to pay the $2,000 the hackers demanded. The mayor says the criminals have restored West Haven's access to its data. 
An effective system of backing up data would have spared them the trouble, expense, and humiliation. And finally, the hoods behind the Grand Crab ransomware have released decryption keys to a Syrian man who said they'd deprived him of photos of his sons, killed in that country's civil war. The extortionists also sent some ambiguous signals that they might remove Syrian targets from their hit list. We hope a grieving father got his memorabilia back, but we're not going to give the Grand Crab Masters much credit for honor among thieves. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is from the SANS Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, welcome back. Um, we You had some information to share today about DNSSEC root key rollover. What do we need to know? Yeah, so DNSSEC is one of those great ideas that never really uh, took off uh, because of uh, some of the really technical difficulties in implementing it and rolling it out. Hmm. Now, one of these issues that has come up uh, recently is the DNS root key. So the way DNSSEC works essentially is that you do verify all of your information in your uh, DNS server by attaching signatures to it. And to verify the signatures, you publish keys. Ultimately, these keys have to be signed by the root key for the root DNS zone. And that key is sort of hard-coded in the configuration file of your DNS server as trusted. 
The problem is that uh, this key also has to be rotated once every so often. And, well, uh, that time is coming up now. But nobody appears to be, or many people <laughs> appear not to be ready for this. Hmm. If you don't rotate this key, then all data being signed by the new to be issued key well, uh, will be considered invalid. So what's to be done here? Well, uh, first of all, verify your DNS uh, server configuration. Make sure you either update the key or you have your server configured to automatically do so. And there is an option now to do it. In general, uh, with a DNSSEC, uh, there are now a couple options to sort of make it also easier to publish your data. Many registrars now support it really just with a quick check of a box. Also, Cloudflare now is getting into sort of the DNSSEC business and make it easier for you to actually participate in it and publish your information using DNSSEC. So do you think we're going to see wider adoption as we go forward? I hope so. Uh, like the Cloudflare approach looks somewhat promising. They're also trying to automate a lot of, sort of the mechanics behind DNSSEC that have been manual in the past. Like, for example, publishing your information then with your parent zone, like your .com or .org zone, your registrar. This was very sort of failure prone, the way this was done in the past. So maybe it'll help. But on the other hand, there are a couple of alternatives coming up now because DNSSEC was so difficult to implement that do most of what DNSSEC does, but at a much lower cost when it comes to implementing it. Like, for example, DNS cookies is sort of one option I see actually taking off quite quickly recently. Hmm. So there's some, uh, I don't know, some other choices out there in the market. Yes, uh, DNSSEC uh, is a very secure, very nice protocol the way it's designed, but maybe a little bit over-designed. So it's kind of you know, almost too secure. It also um, does cause some problems, like for denial of service attacks and the like. These DNS cookies, uh, the nice thing about them is that you really don't have to configure anything on sort of your average DNS server. They sort of just work out of the box. They're not quite as secure and uh, robust as uh, DNSSEC, but well, uh, probably good enough to solve uh, sort of 80% you know, of the problem at a very minimum cost. Hmm. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. My guest today is Mike Horning. He's an assistant professor of multimedia journalism in the Department of Communication at Virginia Tech, with expertise in the social and psychological effects of communications technologies. He and his colleagues recently conducted a study that asked Americans how they felt about government regulation of social media. There's actually something in communication uh, theory that we look at called the third-person effect. This is a theory that basically says that um, people have a tendency to overestimate the impact of media in terms of how it influences other people, and they have a tendency to underestimate its effect on themselves. So, for example, people might uh, in the past say, oh, yeah, lots of people are uh, affected by television, but, you know, television doesn't really affect me. We were kind of curious about this uh, question of fake news. Um, so our questions were, were people overestimating the amount of uh, the impact that fake news would have on other people and in turn also underestimating the impact that it would have on others. So that was the, the start of, you know, the interest. So take us through what did uh, you discover from the survey? 
Well, um, we found a couple things, some some surprising and some not so surprising. Um, you know, the first thing that we found is that, you know, similar to other media influences, uh, we found that uh, that people did have a tendency to think that fake news had a greater impact on people, other people. Um, and they tended to underestimate, um, you know, the impact uh, that it had on them. Um, so that was that in itself was not a, a terribly surprising finding. We kind of expected that. But we did take the research a little bit further. And we asked people, if you were concerned with the impact that fake news had on other people, did you want to see uh, more stricter government regulation of social media uh, to protect you from, you know, influences of fake news. Um, we thought that people, if they were more concerned, particularly if they were more concerned of its impact on others, would probably see uh, a greater need to see, you know, more government regulation. Um, and we found that to be actually not true. Um, people said, yep, uh, we are concerned, um, but we don't want to see a lot of uh, government overs- oversight on social media. Uh, the other interesting finding uh, that we did uh, discover is we also asked people, if you were concerned with fake news, how did it influence your news sharing habits? And and when we said news sharing, we meant all news. So, you know, it could be mainstream news. It could be you know, non-traditional sites. And what we found is that people who were more concerned with the impact of fake news in their social feed were overall uh, more likely to avoid sharing all news in their social feed. So we thought that was an interesting finding, you know, on a number of levels. The, you know, the indirect influence or indirect impact of fake news uh, is that it could discourage people from sharing actually legitimate news. You know, secondary impact could be that it could affect the bottom lines of news industries who in part are dependent on, you know, people sharing that content in their social feeds. Yeah, it's interesting that the, I guess, uh, news itself maybe has a a bad odor on it because of uh, the the implication that um, that it might be fake news. It could be that, but it could be that people are having a difficulty knowing what is what is fake news and what is not. And so, you know, it might be natural for people to just say, well, I'm just not going to share news at all. Uh, Rather, you know, be safe than sorry. I I suppose, I mean, we hear so much about people kind of self-siloing in in these environments, building bubbles for themselves. Yeah. um, And that is um, that's another challenge, I think, that we you know, that we are facing. Um, You know, some of that is uh, because of algorithms, uh, you know, in the social feeds that do uh, basically, um, you know, and it's it's not a conspiracy per se. It's just that the algorithms in your social feeds are designed to give you information that you're interested in. So every time you click on a piece of news or a news site, um, that algorithm, you know, correlates it with other information that you might uh, be interested in. And, And so very quickly, you can kind of find yourself siloed in terms of like the information that you get. Um, you know, and part of it is our own our own doing. Um, we have a tendency to hide people that annoy us and turn off people who, especially in you know, if 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 we're not politically inclined or if we are, we have a tendency to to gravitate towards those people who confirm our own biases, and we have a tendency to reject those people who don't. Now, how does all this inform the work that you all are doing there at Virginia Tech in terms of uh, preparing that next generation of journalists? 
it's something that we certainly talk about in our classes. Um, I teach a class um, that's actually specifically focused on the influences of, of technologies on society. I spend a lot of time trying to get students as journalists to um, think carefully about being fair to different sources. Um, you know, we all have our own biases that, you know, we're always going to be combating those. And and I think that's just, just human nature. And I think that's not so much the problem is the problem is, is being aware of, of those biases and trying to keep them in check and trying to give people the benefit of the doubt when you ask them questions, you know, rather than automatically uh, assuming the worst in someone. And I encourage my students to ask more questions and listen more thoughtfully than anything. I think I think a, a, a good journalist needs to do that uh, first and, you know, ask people, well, why do you think that? And have you thought about, you know, this or that? And engage people in, in meaningful conversations rather than sort of this, um, you know, combative back and forth desire to uh, prove you're right all the time. We have other uh, areas of research where we're trying to help be a little more proactive in addressing that problem. Mm. Uh, I'm working with a colleague in computer science right now where we're working on building uh, uh, an application in your Twitter feed that identifies news in your feed that um, has clearly been marked as, as fake news um, and then other news that has been considered questionable content. And our approach to it is actually not to just be sort of like the the all-knowing seer who says, you know, this news is fake and this news is not, because, you know, we found in, in our research that if if some place like Facebook or Twitter tells you what to think about the news, people have a tendency to almost reject that. So we uh, we try to highlight questions in the news feed that other people in the feed have had so we can kind of encourage more of a, you know, a kind of a citizen to citizen kind of conversation and let and then let people decide for themselves whether they whether they agree with it or not. Our our thinking is just to provide sort of these nudges that uh, encourage people to just kind of think a little more critically about the information in their feeds. That's Mike Horning from Virginia Tech. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.